Good morning, church. Let me lead us in a word of prayer as we open up God's word. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to come once more this Christmas Eve uh, to praise and to worship you, to get to know you, to encounter you, and to be transformed by you. Our Lord and God, we pray that your word today would speak a word of hope um, to a desperately needy world. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good day, everyone. Welcome to our Christmas Eve service. If I haven't met you yet, we've got a few newcomers here. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor of this congregation. We are so glad that you're here today. And now today is a bit of a special Sunday. For starters, it's Christmas Eve, and so there's probably a lot of anticipation to Christmas Day. Um, I saw some of you at the mall yesterday. I'm not going to tell you who I saw, but you're running around looking for things, and I don't want to disturb you, but that's kind of common, right? That's how uh, leading up to Christmas is. Uh, But today is also an opportunity, as mentioned, we're going to baptize little Sinclair after the sermon, so there's a lot of joy connected to that, and some of you are here this morning because of that. Uh, But today is also the day of our final sermon in our series on the book of Malachi, Uh, So there's a lot going on today, lots to give thanks for. Uh, In a really surprising way, the three reasons for why today is special are actually connected. The three reasons for why today is special is actually connected. This is actually found in the main message of Malachi chapter 4, our reading for today. And the main message today is very simple. God is always faithful to his promises. God is always faithful to his promises. Now, the theme of promises is actually introduced in verse 1 of the chapter. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to leave that open. You're going to need that. Because Malachi chapter 4 begins with these words. It says, surely the day is coming. Now, the expression the day or that day in the Bible is actually a pretty technical term. And when it's used, it is often, if not always, a reference to the return of the Messiah, the return of the Savior. It's the long-anticipated day when God will return from heaven to earth to make all things right. It's a day of restoration, renewal, refreshment. Uh, Maybe you've heard the saying, the light at the end of the tunnel. Have you heard that saying before? The light at the end of the tunnel. This here is actually rooted in a biblical reality that life is difficult. It is dark. But the end is bright and the end is coming. Christians believe that this glorious end, this bright future is when Jesus returns once more to make all things right. And so the Bible is filled with promises that this day, that day will come. Uh, To that end, the Bible constantly gives us vivid descriptions, very clear images of what that day will look like. And all of this is designed to stir our longing and our desire for that day. Malachi 4 here is contributing to that picture and fills out that image with a little bit more detail. For example, come me to point one as we observe a promise, a promise to the arrogant, a promise to the evildoers. Now, verse one says that that day is to come. And when that day comes, when Jesus returns, that day will burn like a furnace. You probably don't feel that in this room. It's very cold. But imagine that day like a furnace. As an aside, this is why people, in fact, popular culture often think that hell is going to be hot. 
You know that picture from cartoons, right? The devil and his horns stirring a cauldron of souls with fire in the background. All of this is a caricature, of course, and none of it is true. But passages like Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 do tell us that in the last days, heat will be involved. But you see, this verse is not so much giving us a weather forecast. No, the main point of this verse is that fire and heat will rid the world of arrogant evildoers. Now, when we pause to think about it, fire and heat are appropriate properties because in the ancient world, these were often used for purification purposes, right? I mean, even today, if you have like dirty clothes, you put them in the washing machine. But mums know if you have very dirty clothes, you put in the washing machine and you wash it in extra heat, right? Heat and fire have purifying properties. Unsurprisingly today, a very primitive way to sterilize a needle is to use fire. Fire and heat have a purifying and cleansing effect. Verse 1 tells us that one of the promises associated with Jesus' return is that God is going to purify the world of arrogant people and evildoers. Now listen closely, I think there's a chance that you find this whole furnace, heat, and punishment thing a little bit too much. The idea that God would punish people makes you think that the Christian faith is archaic, maybe even inhumane. And I get that, right? It's common for people inside and outside of the church to think that God is a cold and distant, angry God who lashes out at people whenever he wants. But friends, that's actually not the Bible's presentation of God. No, you see, in verse 1, we know it specifies the sort of people whom God will pour his punishment out upon. It specifies it. And you know, I think that this here is actually a cause for encouragement in a world that is so filled with corrupt evildoers, right? Uh, Two reasons for this. You see, firstly, verse 1 tells us that God actually knows what's going on in the world. God actually knows what's going on in the world. God is so involved with the detailed intricacies of our world that he knows who the arrogant evildoers are. He's not sitting at a distance waiting for some middle manager to report on what's going on in the world. The Bible tells us that God is all-knowing, all-seeing. No dark deed is unknown to him. So when evildoers who escape the judgment of our early courts do so, the passage tells us that they will not escape the judgment of God's heavenly court. He knows all and sees all. Our legal systems on this earth may be broken, but God's system is not broken. You know, some wicked people may think that they're fine because they haven't been caught Ah, But God is keenly involved and God is keenly aware. He knows who the arrogant evildoers in our world are. That's the first cause for encouragement. God knows. The second cause for encouragement in this verse is this. Arrogant evildoers will get what they deserve. Arrogant evildoers will get what they deserve. Now, here's the thing. You and I know that we live in a profoundly broken and fallen world. People get away with doing the wrong things. People aren't rewarded for doing the right things. And perhaps what's worst of all 
is that people are sometimes rewarded for doing the wrong things. This system of injustice is what drives us to anxiety at times, right? It's really easy to get jaded at this sort of unfairness. How is it possible that some wicked doers get away with things? Or, or how come when they get caught, all they do is they just get a slap on the wrist? How is it possible that they don't get punished? These are the sorts of questions that can easily make us lose hope in justice. Uh, but here's the thing. Malachi 4 verse 1 promises that the day is coming when the God who knows all and sees all will punish the arrogant, wicked doers for their deeds accordingly. Now, we don't know the exact nature of this punishment. The Bible doesn't give us specifics. Uh, but this punishment and judgment will be so final and definitive that the rest of verse 1, look at your Bibles with me, says that not a root or branch will be left to them. In other words, every bit of their wickedness will be exposed, laid bare, and dealt with. That's the first promise. God knows who the arrogant evildoers are. Even if they are not on the radars of our legal system, they will deserve, they will receive what they deserve. But as you come to point two with me, we also see that there's a promise to those who revere God's name. Now, if the promise to the arrogant evildoers is punishment, then the promise to those who revere God's name is healing and restoration. This comes from verse 2, which says this, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. You know, the expression, revere my name in your Bible, refers to people who worship the God of the Bible as the true God of the universe. Today, this here refers to Christians. And really powerful and descriptive language is used to describe God's promises to them, to us. And now I need you to put on your imaginative caps for just a moment to understand, to comprehend what's going on here, right? I want you to imagine this with me. Um, I used to have an orchid plant in my study room, you know, an orchid plant. Uh, and there was this once uh, we went on a holiday. And so naturally, like you do in holidays, I shut down all the blinds, I closed all the windows, and I sort of forgot what kind of impact this would have on the plant, so when we came back from a holiday a couple of weeks later, I saw that my poor plant had just all shriveled up, right? The leaves looked dead, and I kind of thought to myself, oh, GG, I killed it, right? Uh, but I spoke to my father-in-law, who's a bit of an orchid specialist, and he said, very simple, just water it and leave it close to the sunlight. I did that, and sure enough, over a few days, the orchid began to change. The leaves were slowly restored. The color was coming back, and you could just see that the plant just started to become vibrant again, despite the fact that it was neglected. Then, it wasn't long before the plant was fully energized, and a few weeks and months later, flowers started to bloom. If you can imagine what that's like, then you're beginning to understand God's promise to those who revere, those who fear, those who honor God's name, those who desire to live their lives in congruence with God's plans and purposes. God's word here is saying, if you honor me above all else, then you will be like the orchid next to the window by the sun. You may be wearied and burdened by the brokenness of this world, 
but you will be healed by its rays. You will be energized. You will bear fruit. You know, this here spoke volumes to Malachi's time, a time of profound post-exilic uncertainty. Uh, What will tomorrow hold? Will our enemies conquer us? Uh, But of course, this speaks just as loudly into our world, right? Where our uncertainties about the future are greater than before. At At a wider scale, you know, what's going to destabilize our world? The market, the war, our climate, pick one or all of them, right? What about your personal lives? What's going to destabilize your world? Probably not very much. You know, you and I work so hard to create an illusion of stability, but it doesn't take much to pierce through that veneer and see the shocking chaos behind your life. And yet, for those who honor God, for a lack of a better term, they are immune to these uncertainties. There will be darkness, there will be tragedies, there will be instabilities, but God's promise here is that there will be healing and restoration when he returns. Our shriveled up hope will be renewed once more. Now verse 2 actually goes one step further, right? Look at verse 2 with me. It's a very funny image. It speaks of well-fed or fat calves frolicking, right? But you'll have to agree with me, that's a very funny picture. Even the word frolic is such a fascinating and playful term, right? Frolic means to play around in a cheerful and lively way. I'm not sure if you've seen animals do that, right? It's really cute when they're just frolicking around. But the kids do that as well, right? Watch them after the service. They're going to frolic out the back, right? Uh, we, tra- we try to take our daughter Anastasia to those water features in parks sometimes. You probably know what I'm talking about. Water features, water flying all over the place. And you just see kids running around, water spraying all over the place, right? They're just having the time of their lives. They are frolicking. Uh, they may fall down, but they pick themselves up and chase each other once more, right? Jumping, skipping around, just having a good time. Do you know why animals can do that? I'm not saying kids are animals, but do you know why animals can do that? Sometimes they are. Do you know why kids can do that? Chase each other around, have a really good time. It's, it's because they have nothing to worry about. So that is God's promise to those who revere his name. For those who worship God, for those who trust in him, for those who desire to live their lives in congruence with God's plans and purposes. The time is coming. The day is coming. When we will thrive like plants close to their source of sustenance. When we will frolic like well-fed calves because God has returned. And God will make all things right. One more promise. Come to point three with me. This here is found in verses five to six. Verse five says uh, that God will send the prophet Elijah before that day of return. And verse 6 tells us that this prophet's role will be to teach people God's word and lead them to repentance. Uh, Verse 6 is interesting, right? Starting from the home as parents own their responsibility and calling the hearts of their children towards God. That's what verse 6 means. You see, the point of teaching God's word is so that people will turn from their sin and rebellion and turn towards God instead. Now listen, if you have some familiarity with the Bible, then you will know that God has already sent the prophet Elijah before. 
and he sent the prophet Elijah during a very low and difficult point in the history of God's people. Elijah was sent to show people how far they have turned from God. He he was sent to warn them of God's judgment and he was sent to offer hope of restoration. So when Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 in front of us uses the name of Elijah once more, we are meant to get the impression that whatever prophet God promises to send will also be like Elijah, similar to Elijah. He will be like Elijah, sent during a low and difficult point in the history of God's people. He will be like Elijah, sent to proclaim the same message of repentance and faith. Now, here's what's very interesting. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to your next page. This is when having a physical Bible helps, right? What does it say? There's a chance that it's a blank page. Or your Bible will either say, the New Testament, or it will say the gospel according to Matthew, the start of the New Testament. In other words, Malachi marks the conclusion of the Old Testament. And what we must not miss, church, is that there is an approximately 400-year time gap between Malachi and Matthew. There was no prophetic record during those 400 years. It's almost like God had been silent towards his people. And the trouble is that when there is no prophetic word, no prophetic record, there is no prophetic hope. Imagine what must have gone through the people's minds, right? For 400 years, that's about 20 generations. That's you and your great, 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 grandchildren, 20 generations who haven't heard God's voice. That's right. Keep going, all right? I missed a few. Thank you for filling that in. People must have thought. Has God forgotten us? What about his promises? Didn't God say that the arrogant evildoers will be punished? Didn't he say that those who trust in him will be healed by the son of righteousness? Didn't he speak about frolicking? I want to frolic. I want to be fat. Car, frolic, right? What happened to that? What happened to this Elijah-like prophet? 400 years. Silence. Listen to how Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 begins. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The silence is broken. Uh, But you see, the gospel of Matthew was not actually the first gospel writing to be recorded. The gospel of Mark is. And I want you to turn over to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, just a few pages across. Because as you turn to Mark chapter 1, we realize that Mark begins exactly where Malachi left off. Remember, Malachi says, a prophet like Elijah is coming to usher in God's promises. And then the Gospel of Mark begins by saying, John the Baptist appearing in the wilderness during a low and difficult point in the history of God's people. After 400 years of silence, what does he do in the wilderness? He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, John the Baptist here in the Gospel of Mark is the fulfillment of the promise we see in Malachi chapter 4. 
Indeed, John the Baptist's ministry mirrored Elijah's ministry so much that in John chapter 1, verse 21, people actually asked John, Hey, bro, are you Elijah? You sure look like him. And so John the Baptist's appearance and ministry in the New Testament breaks 400 years of silence. And it reinforces, church, that God is always faithful to his promises. God will do what he says he will do. But there's more, right? Because you see, the point of John the Baptist's life in ministry was to direct our attention to Jesus. The Jesus whom we celebrate this Christmas, who was born to begin this restoration, to further prepare us for the day that is to come. Because you see, the warning to the arrogant and evildoers is actually a warning to us. Because friends, what's the epitome of arrogance? It's basically declaring that we don't need God. What's the epitome of evil doing? It's declaring that we know better than God on how we are to live. Aren't we all to some degree guilty of the two? And so the warning to all of us today is that if we persist in this, then what's promised to us is purification by fire and heat. Yet the promise to those who revere God is also an invitation for us today. That those who trust in Jesus Christ, the true son of righteousness, will all find healing through him. Friends, this here is actually the heart of Christmas. That we live in a dark and broken world where we ourselves are sometimes our worst enemies. You know, there are external forces at play in the brokenness of the world, for sure, right? But we, our greed, our envy, our selfishness, our insecurity, our fear, chief of all, our sin and rejection of God, all of those things are what's holding us back from the full life that God promises. Yet God has broken the silence and declared that there is healing and forgiveness for all of this. That by trusting that he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, we can have new and eternal life with him. We can have a fresh start. You see, it's possible to admit our arrogance, sin, and wickedness because of the forgiveness and restoration that is held out to all who trust in Jesus. It's possible for real transformation to take place because the grace of God enables it by his spirit. Our friends in church, it is through Jesus Christ that we know that God is always faithful to his promises. His birth that we celebrate this Christmas is not just a reason to enjoy a long weekend, though I pray you have a festive time. More importantly, his birth is the decisive and definitive seal of God's faithfulness towards his people and his promises. What does it mean for us? In a really practical way, you can turn across to your outlines. I want to make three observations in our conclusions. First of all, the fact that God is always faithful to his promises means that we ought to turn from arrogance and sin, right? Verse 1 has made it abundantly clear. God's judgment is reversed for all who are arrogant and evildoers if they trust in Jesus. But you see, 
I alluded to this before, but I'll expand on this a little bit. It's very possible for us to read verse 1 and think that this here is somebody else's problem. Right? Very few of you read that and go, oh, that's talking about me. Now, of course, certainly we can think of a few fairly extreme examples of arrogance, sin, and wickedness, right? People who commit putrid acts that shock even the most vile of criminals. We can think of examples like that. Documentaries are made of them, right? But again, very few people read this verse and think of themselves, this here is talking about me. But you see, a failure to consider the possibility that Malachi 4 verse 1 could be talking about us A failure to recognize that it's probably an overestimation of ourselves. An illusion of thinking about how good and amazing we are. Or it's an underestimation of God's standards. Our friends, a close examination of our hearts may show that our propensity towards arrogance, wickedness, and evil are greater than we could imagine. We can deceive ourselves about the condition of our own hearts with social niceties and self-control, but God sees through all of that. And God, through his word today, is giving us both a warning and an invitation. The day is coming. The day will burn like a furnace. And the invitation, so turn from your arrogance and sin. Second of all, the fact that God is always faithful to his promises means that we ought to turn to the son of righteousness. And I've deliberately played with the word son as in the bright ball in the sky during the day and the word son, the second person of the Trinity. And that's intentional because the metaphor of the sun in the sky, which brings life, is actually meant to lift our eyes to the son of God, Jesus Christ, who brings eternal life. Because here's the thing, immediately after the stern warning of verse 1 is verse 2, which is a soft comfort. That all who turn to God, that all who revere God's name will find healing despite their past. They will find restoration despite their failures. And they will find hope despite their disappointments. You may feel like a shriveled up plant in the dark because of your decisions or indecisions in life right now. But the good news of Christmas is that God is faithful to his promise of healing and restoration to all who trust in him. You may feel crippled by your sin and fear, but if you turn to God, you will frolic like well-fed calves. It is that simple. This is a message of grace that is saturated all across the scriptures. And can I be honest with you right now? I continue to wrestle with this message of grace. Of receiving undeserved forgiveness and restoration through Jesus. And I wrestle with it personally because I feel like I constantly do not deserve this. Maybe you can relate to this, right? When bad things happen to me, I think, yep, I deserve this. And then when good things happen to me, I somehow think, man, like this can't be, this is probably not real. Uh, This could probably be explained by some sort of low self-esteem, probably. But really, when I consider the holiness and utter purity of God, and when I consider my sinfulness, I just think, how could a great, holy, and awesome God possibly call me to be his child? And yet the simple message of the gospel in the Christian faith is this. God sees us at the level of our heart. 
He knows us. And he demonstrates his love and commitment to us by sending his son for us. But you know, I also feel like I wrestle with this because I struggle to receive gifts. I always feel like I need to give something in order um, to get something in return. But when God gives like this, I just think to myself, goodness, what have I done to deserve this? And the right answer is absolutely nothing. God gives this to us because he loves us. But you know, I also wrestle with this because grace is completely unexplainable in human terms. Church, one of the privileges of my role as a pastor is that I get front row seats to the radically transforming work of God's grace. I see this in your lives. I get to see shriveled up lives begin to thrive and bear fruit again. I see hope restored to the hopeless and healing restored to the hurting. That's why I love the act of gift giving during Christmas. Because it illustrates a simple gospel reality. Here is something for you. You did nothing to deserve this. I am giving this to you purely because I love you and I care for you. And that's what Christ has done for us. Friends, can I invite you today, if you haven't already, to turn to Christ, the son of righteousness. Perhaps the first time if you're not a Christian or for the thousandth time once more if you are a Christian because our hearts are prone to wander. Thirdly, the fact that God is always faithful to his promises means that we ought to keep teaching this to one another. Look at Malachi 4 verse 4 with me. You see, this entire chapter is filled with God's promises. And then sandwiched in between all of these promises is a call to remember the law or the word of my servant Moses. Now, the word remember here can mean a few things. Uh, But for our purposes, I want to emphasize that to remember here is the call to cognitively remember, to call to mind God's word to us. And we can remember, not just by just reflecting, which is really good, but we remember also by constantly teaching this to one another. Teaching not necessarily new information each time, but teaching once again truths we cannot afford to forget. And the purpose of teaching this to one another is so that we can keep spurring one another on onto trusting that God is always faithful to his promises. Because here's the reality, our hearts are prone to forget, no? Our hearts are prone to grow cold and old and numb towards God's love and grace. In the midst of trials, we may forget that God knows the intimate details of your lives. When we are oppressed, we may lose hope that there could be final vindication and justice. In the darkness, we may lose sight of the light that is before us. Church, God is always faithful to his promises. Teach this. Teach this to each other in your 3-2-1 groups. Teach this to one another in your CGs. Teach this to one another as you sit around a meal table. Teach this to one another as you have long drives in the car during this holiday. Teach this to one another in your group chats on WhatsApp and Messenger. Teach this to one another as opportunities arise. The sum of the Christian life is to keep growing in grace. Church, for us today, it is as we finish up our series in the book of Malachi... But in a very special way today as well, it is as we celebrate the baptism of little Sinclair Sue. 
Baptism is one of the sacraments of the Bible. It is meant to visibly display the spiritual realities of the gospel. And so in a very special way, Sinclair today is going to teach us that God is always faithful to his promises as we baptize him. Let me pray for us as we do just that. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are always faithful to your promises. We thank you that you are kind and gracious to us, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so, Lord, we pray that this Christmas you will continue to teach us and cause us to call to mind your faithfulness and love towards us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.